Inspired in part by Sadia Hartman's Lose Your Mother, Lose Your Sister is a meditation on Black feminist thought and diaspora. Treating pop culture as a text, each week we will explore a different topic, film, show, book, event, scandal, etc. A note on creation. As we set out to build this podcast together as an exercise in friendship, cultural criticism, and diasporic exchange, we find strength in remembering that we come from a history of people who have loved and learned from one another across larger distances than this one. In the words of Saidiya Hartman, I too live in the time of slavery, by which I mean I'm living in the future created by it. Situated in this future, Lucia's sister considers how Black people find their way back to one another, interpersonally, artistically, and politically. Hey, hey. <laughs> Hi, Jordan. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thank you. It was my birthday yesterday. Yes, um, yes. Another year of iconic oh, thank things. You. you. I give it to the girls. <laughs> A 22nd time. Well, I guess it's like I'm in my 23rd year of life, right? Yes. I guess. Yeah. Oh, actually, something funny was when um, I turned 20, I was like, it's like for my second decade, da, 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 da. And all my friends were like, you're on your third decade now. <laughs> technically and I was like this, I don't like that but I guess it's the same thing with like the 21st century even though we're in the like yeah so yeah had a lovely birthday organized an impromptu snowball fight <laughs> I'm in Central Park because it was snowing in my that's birthday. so cute yeah the first time it happened and that was really fun so thank you to everybody who came down for that um I love that and yeah watched the Wendy Williams biopic <laughs> in the evening while I was <laughs> Oh, wow. While I was eating, um, while I was eating my dinner. Dinner and a show. Yeah, and, and a show. And what a show it was. <sighs> Do you want to yes. unpack, unpack a little? Yes. So um, I guess it's the lifetime, like, reenactment of Wendy Williams's life. I believe it was executive. Mm-hmm. Would, you, would you say? She produced it. Yeah, I believe it was executive produced by Wendy Williams herself. Um, there's also a documentary that like is like is a companion piece to the kind of um, dramatic like you know version of the of the film. Yeah, I mean it was super it was super funny. One just like I guess the performance and like the actress. I don't think that she necessarily necessarily did a bad job, but I think that Wendy Williams is a very particular person, and I think that she can be very difficult. I think to embody. Absolutely. in a lot of different ways whether it's because of like like how distinct her look is or even how distinct her voice is I think that she's someone that a lot of people are like primed to recognize so I think trying to portray her is already kind of hard agreed I I don't even know what to think know <laughs> <laughs> what took me out was when they reenacted her um um fainting Oh, yes. This is the Statue of Liberty. I was like, not this. You know what? It's weird to see (laughs) something in in a documentary that happened so recently. Mm -hmm. And I remember the memes. I was like, not this. Um, But in terms of editing, directing, writing, atrocious. On all fronts. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, lifetime movies are a crime against humanity. Why? Uh Oh. I I thought the actress did okay with what she could do. Yeah. Oh, this is Wendy. I wish Wendy had actually narrated it though. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I kind of liked about the documentary is that you hear it in Wendy's own voice. And I think there's more of an emphasis on what Wendy brought to radio and to like pop culture commentary and to like mm. gossip culture writ large, which I think was actually really interesting in terms of thinking about that there maybe potentially wasn't as much of a space for like black pop culture nonsense prior, like, you know, for like black people in that kind of space. Yeah. Cause I think a lot of, a lot of gossip culture in terms of like magazines was like mostly white. So I think that it, it kind of is kind of cool. Like, you know, that she got to be into that, come into that space and make room for like all these other people, right? Like, I don't, I wonder if we would get like a shade room without a Wendy Williams. Yes. Um, I know you would be suffering if Wendy Williams <laughs> wasn't around. Or if we were born before. <laughs> when this came on. I just feel like I came at exactly the right time because it's just like, it's just messy, but also like very fun. And I think that she has an interesting balance of both. I also think that the documentary gave me a little bit more respect for her as a person in certain ways. Although... I think that she is very disrespectful in a lot of ways. I think that there's also something to be said for, I think, some of the more difficult chapters in her life. Um, and so I think that those were moments where I was kind of like, oh, I was really disturbed, for example, by like the fat phobia that she experienced as a child. And I honestly think that could have been better portrayed if they had gotten a different actress. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if the actress who played her as a child, to me, looked that much like her, but that's just my personal take. Also- also, Wendy Williams had had surgery. I thought about that as well. And I was like, but wait, what did she look like before? <laughs> like, yeah. Like? Yeah, I was kind of uh, struck by that, like in terms of the fact that like they have a section where they talk about how her parents used to weigh her like as a child and like change her diet up and things like that. And I just was really disturbed by like the way her parents were monitoring her weight, um, which I thought was really abusive and like probably really emotionally and psychologically traumatizing for her at a very young age. And so I was really interested in that and also how like I think that she finds a way to get out of that space um, and how I think that her kind of her mouth gets her in a lot of trouble. But I think it also is probably ultimately what got her out of New Jersey. Right. And I think that's where she that she wanted to leave. And I think that that was her key. So also just I just think that she went through a lot, like in terms of like her interactions, like her relationships with men, her interactions with the industry, um, her fertility troubles. I think there were a lot of moments where I was kind of struck by, okay, like this woman has experienced a lot of pain. And I think it contextualized some of what I understand to be her more cruel moments. Yeah, she's definitely influential and tenacious and hardworking for for worse rather than better. (laughs) Yeah, she's changed the way we consume pop culture. Yeah. So crazy. But how are you? I didn't ask. Yeah, I'm, I'm really good. I actually am like kind of coming off of like a really good week. The end of Aquarius season treated me really well. I got a couple, you know, PhD program acceptances. So it's looking like I'm going to be like, you know, grad school girly. And so that's kind of cute. Thank you. So that's kind of cute. Um, and I just got a lot of stuff coming in like through the pipeline in terms of like freelance stuff and in terms of like like just wrapping up senior year kind of projects that I've been working on. So I'm kind of feeling like I'm in a good place right now. So I'm kind of excited about that. I love that. Oh yeah. And also um, coming off the back of that, I had my um, first radio show episode. Yes, yes, yes. Day. So yes, yes. We're, being, we're doing big things. Lizzie's sister. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
You can say you knew us before. It's exactly. You can say you, can say you were there for the come up. <laughs> yes, you could be in the comments and be like, y'all, y'all not real fans because like y'all weren't there back in the day. Like, yes, I want you to be like in the comments, like name five of Jordan singles. Click. <laughs> <laughs> name five Leisure Sister episodes. Yes. <laughs> Quickly and don't look it up. Exactly. Real ones. So other than Wendy Williams, what um, media have you been waiting for? So I literally have been like in a, like a very deep, like thesis writing dive as of late. But Mm -hmm. when I came up for air last night, after I finished my draft, I binge watched um, WandaVision and now I'm on episode six. Yeah. And that was like, I was really surprised about how much I liked it. I've always been like a, uh, like a Marvel girl like I've seen all of the Marvel movies um, so I was always into that like universe but I really like the way the show is structured and I think that it's kind of nice to get I guess a bite-sized like you know like episode like series portion of ma- the Marvel universe compared to like having to sit through like a two-hour movie mm. and like watch you know Thanos kill everybody <laughs> I think that it's kind of I kind of like the structure that I'm able to like just watch like a 20 minute episode and come back to it um I think that part is kind of cool lovely no I'm I want to watch um uh, WandaVision I have a long watch list same yeah um Rami is also on my watch list yes it's on my watch list next too I've heard a lot of good things about it mm-hmm. and just like need to make time to like sit down but I have a really weird habit of just like rewatching things I already love instead of watching new stuff. So I always like end up going back. They just put Chewing Gum on HBO, I think. So I'm probably going to end up rewatching that soon because I just like Michaela Cole is just like hilarious. And Chewing Gum, I think, is when I fell in love with her as a person, like even before I made Destroy You. So I think I want to revisit that. And I've been watching Sex in the City, which I will always I will always go back to those white women. Like they're a mess, but I love them. So there's that too. You know what? It's funny that you mentioned chewing gum because I don't really rewatch stuff. But one <laughs> episode I always return to is the one where she um, dates that racist white guy. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's actually like disturbing. I think the funniest part, like, like obviously the funny part is like when she like gets like dressed up, right? In that like that like costume that somehow he has. No, um, it's for the, her it's or that she grandmother's. <laughs> yes. So it's super, it's super random that like, you know, like that particular scene when she's dancing, right? But the funniest part is when his X shows up and she's exactly. black and he has those other kids and you're like this man is a danger to himself and others and no and what's funny to me is the kids are like not again it's the way the kids just like know that their white daddy is an embarrassment like from the jump like they're just in the know and part of me is like I resent him for like putting those kids in that position but I also think it's hilarious that they clock their dad <laughs> I love that episode this is, has a special place in my heart but I've been watching um the Queen's Gambit late yes I love that show yes it's good I was like let me watch this white it's really good and yeah like my heart is in it I love the character Beth I love the writing I love um, that Beth just knows she's that girl, even when mm-hmm. she's young. 
and <laughs> there's an episode when Beth is like like nine or eight and she plays mm-hmm. um these high school boys in a simultaneous it's when you're playing like 12 people well more than one person yeah like she ends up playing like 12 of them and she beats all of them in like two hours and she's like are you not ashamed of yourself are you not embarrassed? <laughs> this is very embarrassing <laughs> No, that's such an iconic scene. And I love it. Such an iconic scene. I like loved watching Queen's Gambit. I used to play chess when I was younger. Oh, really? Um, And so it kind of brought me back to like that point in my life when I like actively was invested in chess. Um, My chess history is very short, but also iconic. Um, Like I was like very good at chess (laughs) one more time. Um, And I used to like go to competitions and like win and stuff. Um, but then I got to a certain point where my, my chess coach was like this guy who just like in the DC area used to like teach people how to play chess, like in the community. But, um, literally my primary goal was just like to beat him. And one day I beat him and I retired. I literally said, I'm never playing again because he was the best player I knew. And I was like, I was like, if I beat this man, I'm never playing again. And I beat him and I never played again. (laughs) I was like, yeah, I was like, I'm leaving. I'm leaving on a winning record. I'm not gonna let y'all like like you? mess up my record. Like, no, that's all I ever wanted. How old are you? I was like ten. <laughs> I was like ten, but I had a very strong like. I don't know. I think I had a very strong sense that like I wanted. I wanted good records only, and so I was like, I just I'm gonna play until I can beat him, and then that's it. That was me, but with Wii Sports. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> what was your sport? Um, tennis, and I think, was was it bowling? I used to love the bowling. Yeah, all I remember, I just wanted to beat my older cousin. <laughs> my older cousin, and we shout to him. <laughs> when Because he's like five years older than me. And of course, when you're like, you're, yeah. that's a big gap. Yeah, that's like iconic. No, I think the best time to retire is like after you defeat, after you defeat your 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 icons and like, the people that you consider to be your real competition, just like dip out after that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah Queen's Gambit is great. Um, I don't, still, I've never played chess before. Um, mm-hmm. Still know nothing about chess, which is really funny to me as I'm watching it and I'm gross. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. But I'm <laughs> <excited>. <laughs> I'm like, I'm rooting. <laughs> uh, so funny. Um, yeah, I've learned nothing about chess other than the um, white always plays first and the black always plays second. So you, you see how anti-blackness pervades everything? Mm. Honestly, like, there's definitely, like, you know, an Afro-pessimist reading to be made. You know, like, I'm not, like, maybe I won't make it, but it can be made. You know what? I want to start timing um, how long it takes for you to mention Afro-pessimist in an episode. <laughs> <you've>... <laughs> what you call it? I won't bring it up if anti-blackness would rest, but <laughs> she doesn't, so I won't either. I, I, have you even hit the five minute mark yet? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm screaming. So yeah, all I know is, yeah, the order that the um, pieces play, which I didn't, I would have assumed that it was, um, it didn't matter. <laughs> So I was like, it's really weird that one color always plays first, but anyway. Yeah. I know how a chess clock works now. Mm-hmm. And I know what simultaneous is, and that's it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's all you really need to know. I mean, I think the show does a 
decent job of making sure you understand the things you need to understand. Absolutely, but yeah. I also think that in some ways it's almost like, um, I don't know, I think that in some ways like the way that she plays on screen is like, it's choreographed. So, I mean, I think the point is just to like watch her in the game, but you almost like, you kind of don't need to understand all of it. Yes. Yeah. It's like watching sports movies. Like sometimes I watch movies and I'll be like, you know, I don't really understand the sport super well, but I think that sometimes it's just about like seeing people like like at the top of their game. Yeah, so and am I watching anything else this weekend? Queen's Gambit, Wendy Williams. Um no, um other than the two movies that we're gonna get into yes. today. Um we have Whew. oh we have a double episode for you guys today because we know that um it took us a while to upload because we had a little cameo from somebody's son. Um. <laughs> <laughs> from a little canine fiend. <laughs> from my canine child. Um, you know, he was he was showing out and showing up and he was not invited. And I didn't send for him and he came anyway. And so we're gonna prevent that from happening in the future. But because of it, we were a little behind because <laughs> he decided to make a cameo on the audio. And yeah, it took me a while to edit it out and for Jordan to <laughs> record a bit. <laughs> but we're here to rectify it with a double episode, exploring Malcolm and Marie and Judas and the Black Messiah. Two very different movies. <laughs> very different movies. But I think in, in Lose Your Sister fashion, we're gonna find a way you know, to bring everything back together and I think that this episode is going to be super fun because I think that we've found a way I think to bring these movies into conversation that probably otherwise would not <laughs> not have appeared in yeah. anybody's conversation yeah and to be honest the, the real reason why we're um doing both of them in this episode is that they were released to get like quite quickly I think yeah Marie was released on like the 4th of February, Black Messiah was released 15th. So by the time mm -hmm. we had done them two separately, because we're a bi-weekly show, it would have been late for the one that we didn't do yeah. this episode. So we decided to do them both together. <sighs> so yeah, so we're going to get into Malcolm and Marie first. Yes. Um, <laughs> child. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really upfront of it. <laughs> I'm really honest upfront. Like how, how I was with um, Lovecraft Country. This movie sucks. <laughs> it's not good. At all. Oh, yeah. Very few redeeming things about this movie. Um, yeah. It gave me a headache. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I guess like, you know, just to start y'all off, we're going to do, we're going to do a little synopsis, you know, a little, a little summary, a little summary tea. Just, you know, to like, cleanse the palate and make sure you know what you're about to get into. We want to provide a trigger warning that Malcolm Memory does contain, you know, references to drug abuse and emotional abuse. So in order to discuss the movie, of course, we will have to discuss those topics. So heads up, if those are, you know, subjects that you want to avoid, please feel free to like, you know, grab ahead to um, the, the section where we're going to talk about Judas and the Black Messiah. I guess just for some background, Malcolm Marie is a 2021 black and white Netflix film that was written and directed by Sam Levinson, who is best known as the creator of the hit HBO show Euphoria. Malcolm Marie 
centers Malcolm, a 35-year-old director, and Marie, his 25-year-old girlfriend. The couple descend into a vicious argument after they return from the premiere of Malcolm's latest movie because he forgot to thank Marie in his speech. As the pair go back and forth, we learn that Marie met Malcolm while she was a recovering drug addict at 20 years old, and that the movies Malcolm made and has received all this fanfare for is eerily similar to her life, although Malcolm denies the resemblance. For the cast of Malcolm and Marie, Levinson reunited with the lead actress of Euphoria, Zendaya, who stars opposite John David Washington, the breakout star of Spike Lee's 2018 film, Black Klansman. And in Malcolm and Marie, the two leads are the only actors in the film, and they also served as producers. Malcolm and Marie is somewhat historic because it is the first film, or first American film, at least, to be written, filmed, and released entirely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Zendaya asks Levinson to write a film for her because they're both close friends after Euphoria. And eventually they settled on the script and later brought on Washington. They created the film independently with a small skeleton crew while in quarantine and later sold it to Netflix. Malcolm Marie is also exceptional in that producer and lead actress Zendaya ensured that the crew owned shares of the film so they could continue to make money after it was sold. Shares of films is where the real money is made. Netflix bought Malcolm Marie for $30 million. So a share of just 1% could award a crew member $300,000. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's some, that's some serious money. Yeah. Um, so I guess like in terms of first thoughts, right, about this movie, I think one thing I want to stress, right, before we get into, um, you know, some of the things that were less than great about this project mm. is that, I do think there's something really special about Zendaya's involvement in the project in terms of the work that she did um, in ensuring that crew members had a share, right? And and in terms of even kind of embarking on this kind of mission to create a film during the pandemic, right? I think that, I think it was a major feat. And I think that I respect, I think the, the desire to not, you know, to continue to create art during this time. And I think I commend her for the way that I think that she really made a point to to center the crew and some of the decision making that she made. I agree. I think it's really commendable and just admirable that Zendaya is like setting new standards in the industry at such a young age. And also from researching the film and listening to Levinson, Sam Levinson answer for himself. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what this man needs to explain himself. Um it sounded like him, Zendaya and Washington had a lot of freedom, mm-hmm. creative freedom, which I think is really excellent. Something you don't really hear a lot about in Hollywood. Usually there, there are lots of restraints, um, but because they made a film independently and then they just sold it to Netflix, they had yeah, lots of freedom, um, lots of space to try new things. And I feel like this film could have been, could have been a good film if somebody was there to like edit the script or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think creative freedom is of course a brilliant thing for an artist but I do think part of art is collaboration and you need an outside voice to be like that don't work that needs time yeah um, yes and I think you know what's funny oh and I need to shout out my girl Eden <laughs> one of my close friends in college because I watched the film with her and the only reason I finished it is because I watched it with her and we were kikiing the whole time um, and I also watched the Wendy Williams film with her um, but she linked the film to Queen and Slim which is interesting because I think mm. similar in that 
the script needed development. It could have been, they could have yeah. been films, but the script needed development. And it also needed more time to just redraft the script because I think Queen and Slim, Lena Wave kept on talking about how she wanted the film to be written and filmed in the same year. And I was like, this story mm-hmm. needs to breathe, be reconsidered, redrafted. Yeah. Yeah, nurtured really. And I think with Malcolm Marie, because it was um, filmed in such, written and filmed in such a short time, there wasn't enough time to really, yeah, like nurture the story and help it to grow into something great. So we got this. Yeah. I think that what struck me is that you know, that Zendaya reached out to this man and said, write me a script and this is what he gave her. <laughs> um, that's what struck me. Um, I think I was really disturbed because it's like, I don't know what about this particular piece screams Zendaya to him. And I think that when the film was like originally kind of, um, when the early trailers were released and like the description of the film were released, I had two main thoughts, right? Like one being that, have we not already seen Zendaya play a young drug addict in Euphoria? Mm-hmm. And two, you know, what an odd pair, <laughs> like Zendaya oh. and John David Washington was odd. And I think that obviously, like, you know, there were a lot of conversations about the age gap. And I think there's something to be said for, I think, the way that Zendaya's career as a child actor and then as an adult actor who plays teenagers how that kind of informs I think people's ideas about her and like what their expectations are and I think that those are like not completely um unfounded right like I think it's totally fair for people to have a little bit of a pause about the idea of seeing her in a project like this I will say that like the film is obviously engaging with the age gap to some extent right I think it informs the power dynamics between Malcolm and Marie but I don't know I think I found this, like you said, I think the script was strained, in my opinion. I think that it, it just felt like a long run-on sentence. Mm-hmm. And I guess, I guess maybe that was supposed to capture the fact that they're, they're arguing all night, but I just found the dialogue to be very awkward, personally. Yeah. Yeah, my first thoughts of the film is that it was exhausting. I remember watching it with my friend, and about an hour in, we checked the time, and we're like, there's another hour left. <laughs> Because, like, uh, because it's just two, a couple arguing, because it's one note and it's not written well, it's just stressful. Like, you don't want to listen to two people arguing yeah. constantly. And, like, the, the way the film, first of all, is unstructured. But if you could write out the structure of the film, it's like Marie finds something to claim about, usually rightfully so. Malcolm has a long monologue, shouting. Just yeah. <laughs> no no um conception of an inside voice, just shouting. Marie responds, they almost have sex, but not quite. And yeah. then, <laughs> and just as they're getting intimate, Marie finds something else to complain about, and then it goes on again. And so it just feels like a lot of like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and like nothing builds. And yeah, it's just yeah, I think it's especially a hard sell. I think when you introduce a couple that like the audience isn't familiar with and you introduce us first to all of their like issues, right? Like all of the kind of problems with this relationship. And I think after a while, I think I really struggled to be invested in them as a unit, right? Yeah. I think over time I was kind of like, you know what, Marie girl, oh, you in danger. <laughs> like you need to go. <laughs> I was like, listen sis, like, 
I'm gonna send the Uber because there's really no reason for her to be living like this. Yeah, I think I was just kind of like, I couldn't figure out why we were supposed to root for them as a couple, other than the fact that the film puts their names together because everything else about their dynamic to me felt like these people have no reason to be with each other. That like the very kind of inception of their relationship, which is, you know, that he, I think he literally meets her when she overdoses, like in a, in a public place, right? Um, And that he facilitates her going to rehab. And I think what disturbed me is that like to meet this woman at that point in her life. And I mean, like, I say woman, but like she was extremely young. She's in her, she's 20 years old. And I don't know. I think that there's something disturbing to me about how that relationship shifted from being one of assistance to like a romantic or sexual one. And I think I feel like it's a little weird that Malcolm as a man who's like 10 years older than her, right? Mm -hmm. Almost, right? Is engaging with a young woman who was as vulnerable as Marie was at that point in her life. Um, And honestly, Marie is still vulnerable. I think it's very clear that there's also a class discrepancy between the two of them. Mm. On your point of not believing that they're a unit, I didn't understand why they were attracted to each other. Me either. Emotionally, sexually, romantically, I just did not. There was no chemistry. I've seen a lot of talk on Twitter of um, filmmakers not being invested in their um, two leads having chemistry anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I just didn't, I didn't get it. And also with the age gap and the power dynamic between Zendaya and, not Zendaya and Malcolm, between Malcolm and Marie, there is, <laughs> <laughs> there's a point when Malcolm is like, listen, of all the girls that um, he's dated, and he's like, you're not the first broken girl I've been with. Mm-hmm. And he has a history of dating drug, drug addicts and vulnerable women. I'm like, hold on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, he's a predator. Like, I don't know. It was just weird. Also, the like the way that he was just like saying all these things. I think what disturbed me the most about like how how everything kind of turned out was in part because, you know, in the interviews around the film, it felt to me like there wasn't an understanding amongst the cast and crew that what was happening on screen was abuse. Yes. Um, and that was my concern because there are interviews where John David Washington is talking about like how romantic this movie is and I'm sorry but I didn't find this film to be romantic and I think I would have felt very differently if they had said that this is a movie specifically about emotional abuse right like this is a movie that is engaging with those topics I think I would have watched it very differently and like I think there's a a line right in the kind of press media where they were kind of like oh um it's not a love story it's a story about love right which I guess like they thought was like a cute kind of quirky thing to say or whatever but like I don't think it I'm not sure if it's a story about love, right? Like, I, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah, I don't know. I think I had a lot of problems with that and also about the dynamic in terms of him using so much of her her lived experience as, like, the source for his, like, material. I thought that was also really disturbing. And I think it explains why, you know, him forgetting to to thank her at the awards at the premiere, right, for his first film, strikes such a chord, right? Because I think it, it connects to, like, I think the inception of their relationship where I think that he is, I don't know, I think he constantly feels like he's doing something for her, but I think that he, I think that she gets very little out of that relationship in some ways. Yeah, something that really frustrated me about the film is that was framed as, like, this couple taking jabs at each other, and, like, it's toxic and it's messy, but because they're arguing, um, yeah. they're fighting each other on an equal playing field. 
Mm-hmm. And because of the age gap and this power dynamic of um, Malcolm taking, literally taking Marie in um, mm-hmm. as a 20 year old drug addict who's recovering, there's no equal playing field because yeah. <laughs> it's just, and so it becomes emotional abuse. And you constantly see Marie attacking Malcolm for his career as a filmmaker, his like personality as being um, narcissistic, which are valid things to critique somebody of. Mm-hmm. And then Malcolm just sits below the belt and picks up on Marie's history of addiction when she attempted suicide and all these other horrible things and say, look at how I built you and you'd be nothing about yeah. Like, that's all abuse. I was, yeah. I was in shock when I was watching. I was like, this is horrible. She needs to get to out. There's actually a point when um, Marie says to Malcolm, I can't believe you're abusing me while you're eating mac and cheese. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> the and most the- awkward line ever. <laughs> and at the time, I was glad that she was saying the word abuse because I was like, this is what, be- like, this looks like a yeah. abuse. But that's never really weighed on in the film and, like, they say together mm-hmm. at the end. I really yeah. thought, I hope that Marie was going to leave. That never happened. Because, yeah, for some reason, the people who made this film were very committed to portraying it as a love story. Mm-hmm. And it's about a predator who emotionally abuses a recovering drug addict who is 10 years younger than him. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I think the point that you made in terms of, like, the, the way that the the primary kind of vehicle right for the way that they engage throughout the film is through these arguments and like how that creates I think a, a false notion right that, that that they're on equal playing fields I think that another thing that I think contributes to the as a viewer right like our inability I think to get a sense of of that power dynamic is also the fact that we see them like without the world right like we don't actually see them in context of like any mm-hmm. real environments and I think that that would be super helpful because I think it, to me it seems very clear that Marie is coming one from a very different class background than Malcolm because it's implied that even prior to his success as a filmmaker that he was raised very comfortably right like she talks about his family being like um like you know uh like psychologists and uh, professors and stuff like that and it's kind of implied that like you know that he comes from money right that he comes from a certain level of security and it's kind of clear that Marie did not right like she is very obsessed with like the fact that they have a backyard um and she seems like she's experienced financial insecurity in a way that he has not and also job insecurity in a way that he has not right because like now like she is like out of an industry that it seemed like she was very passionate about I don't know I think I think that if we had gotten to see right the context of just like how different how different their lives are Mm -hmm. right I think it would have potentially helped to make it clearer that these two people potentially shouldn't be engaging in this particular way because I almost question like how like how they even get there right like I mean like for him to meet this woman on what potentially could have been the worst day of her life right like he meets her when she when she's overdosing what the last day of her life yeah that could have been the last day of her life and so it's also like to meet her at what, what was potentially her rock bottom right and for him to see that as like an opportunity right and he talks about that being their love story but like I have real real discomfort about what it is that he saw in that dynamic that was romantic because mm-hmm. I think maybe you could understand her being potentially like I don't know quote unquote grateful to him maybe you could see that but I don't see where he would get this sense that this was a vehicle to a romantic and sexual relationship because like she quite literally was about to die yeah 
I definitely see like the narrative and visual appeal of sticking to one location, that being the Mm -hmm. house and the movie playing out in real time as they have this argument throughout the night. And I think the reason why we feel that we don't get that sense of context by the two characters is because this movie wasn't written well. And I think yeah, are going to have just two characters in a house for two hours. And that old, and it's just them like talking at each other. You need to have mm-hmm. an airtight script. Yeah. The script needs to be excellent. The acting needs to be on point. And unfortunately, yeah, Mark and Marie failed on those two fronts, I think. And also the reason why um, it's stuck to one place is because, of course, the restrictions of COVID. Yeah. But yeah, and I think maybe if they were allowed outside and could interact with other characters and things like that, I know that's a massive, that would take away a massive component of the film, but maybe it would have saved Mm -hmm. it (laughs) because the other weaknesses would not have showed up. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Yeah. I mean, I guess in terms of the script, I think there's also a conversation to be had about Sam Levinson, right? And like him as a a white, you know, um, screenwriter and like the way that he, I think, approached writing these characters in Mm -hmm. particular. I think that on one hand, it's clear that he knows that the characters are Black, but I think there is a way in which there are moments in their dialogue that feel very odd to me, right? And I think on one hand, while my instinct isn't necessarily to say like, Black people don't ever talk like this, I think that there is something kind of weird about when he decides to introduce quote unquote Black vernacular and when he doesn't, Mm. right? And like the way that Malcolm speaks to Marie is very long-winded and he uses all these like just very like big words um and like obviously you know obviously there are black people who speak that way but I think for me what it came down to was that I'm not sure if anyone speaks this way when they're angry (laughs) right I think that my main thing was that like regardless of race I am and maybe this is just like my observation but I personally feel like when people are angry they're vocabulary tends to decrease right like that's like when people like turn to like curse words and turn to like insults um and it tends to be a lot less reliant on like this kind of like sat word bank Mm -hmm. and i just don't feel like it makes sense for you to be like on hour three of beefing with your girlfriend and y'all are talking about solipsistic i knew you were gonna say solipsistic i was waiting for it like i just don't i just don't think that that sounds natural at all in my opinion black white asian like i like regardless of race i think that that felt really weird to me i think that marie's dialogue was slightly more natural than malcolm's but i thought that there were moments where malcolm was just kind of ranting and i think on one end right there's the way that like that could add texture to the character in terms of like explaining like you know his his thought patterns and his speech patterns but in other ways I think it kind of revealed how the script wasn't edited properly yes um yeah the script wasn't edited properly at all like because Sam and also the script didn't have any sort of supervisor and you can tell (laughs) so Sam wrote this gave it to Zendaya and um John David Washington for notes and it seemed like it didn't have any other input but yeah, I think because Sam Lesson does talk about wanting to have like a heightened sense of reality and not it being mm-hmm. completely naturalistic, which is fine, like a play or something. And I think of, is his name August Wilson, the person who wrote Fences? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it also has like these long, elaborate monologues. However, mm-hmm. they're written so well that even when it does deviate from reality, you don't notice mm-hmm. because you're, 
you're wrapped up in either the rhythm, the words, or it's lyricism. Um, and it doesn't seem like it's trying so hard to make a statement. I think that's also a big issue with Malcolm Marie. It's clearly trying so hard to be a great film. Yeah. <laughs> it's done best. And so it's just, it comes across as awkward, embarrassing, embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nella, Ro- Nella Rose reinvented the English language. <laughs> embarrassed, embarrassing. Anyway, that's a side note. But five minutes into the movie, I was like, which white man wrote this? Because black people don't. <laughs> I was like, I know Sam Levinson directed this. I wonder if he wrote this, wrote this as well. Because I was like, yeah. black people don't speak like this. Um, and also because of the way that Malcolm was talking about like black directors and how white people look at his movies. Yeah. It just didn't feel like a black person speaking. It felt very, very awkward. It literally mm-hmm. felt like I was in a college creative writing class and <laughs> a white person in the workshop <laughs> wanted to see what it was like to write in a black voice and dare. <laughs> and then he produced this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it just felt insidious to me that yeah. Tom Levison is using a black actor, like a ventriloquist. Sorry, I couldn't even say that right. Ventriloquist <laughs> to air his grievances about um, yeah. identity politics in the film industry and also dragging other black people's names into it. Just as yeah. Barry Jenkins. Because what did Barry Jenkins do to have his name dragged up and down like, and around throughout I know, I know Barry was like, now how am I in it? <laughs> so see, I because he nothing. really <laughs> did it. He didn't do nothing. He was minding his business. Yeah. And then they drag him into this. Um, I totally agree. I totally agree. I think it was really weird to think about what it means for the casting of John David to give Sam Levinson license perhaps to say things that he wouldn't feel comfortable saying as a white filmmaker, right? That like through the character of Malcolm, he gets to voice, I think, whatever kind of um, angst, right? That he has about the industry and about the so-called politics or like apolitical nature of, of art, right? And I feel like in some ways he gets to use Malcolm to make that argument because I think that he knows that if he made that argument, everybody would side eye him. The thing is, I'm side-eyeing Malcolm as well. So that one didn't work. But like, you know, nice try, nice Mm -hmm. try. But like, I think that there's a way in which he kind of uses Malcolm as a puppet, like, you know, like like what you said. And and I think it is really, really odd. And I just, I don't know, I was kind of torn, I think in terms of how to engage Malcolm as a character because at times it felt like like he was just Sam Levinson. Yeah. And a lot of the film is literally just, Sam Levinson, forward slash Malcolm, just ranting about film and the um, reaction to his film and his frustrations that um, critics only engage with his race rather than the actual content of his film and they're always racializing yeah. things or politicizing things, which is a grievance of Black creators in general. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it didn't add anything to the conversation, even if it's something that I maybe, maybe agree with. And also yeah. I have the irritation that it did not feel like a Black person was speaking when I saw Mm -hmm. um, Malcolm speaking on screen. So again, yeah, it just felt like Sam Levinson just ranting through his work. Yeah. With with no sort of tact, no finesse, Mm -hmm. no flavor. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, I think it also wasn't super compelling either because one, Malcolm does a lot of complaining before we ever actually see him get a review. Right. So like he is like complaining before we actually understand 
how he's been regarded as a filmmaker. Like we only really understand the world through his perspective. And I think it's kind of hard to even decide if you agree with him or not. I think it's also even more awkward because like you said, like, you know, the, the grievance of feeling like, oh, all every people ask me about is, is race and like not my craft is like a concern, right? That like many other like, you know, black creatives and cultural workers have, you know, experienced throughout the history of, of their work, particularly in like in the West. But I think, I, don't know, I think it falls flat in part because Malcolm also establishes himself as being very avoidant with regard to politics, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it kind of falls flat because it's less that Malcolm is saying, yes, I'm black. And like, that's important to me in the way that I do my art but I would also like to talk about this. He's kind of like trying to make an argument that like his blackness shouldn't matter like at all, like in any way. And that we should just like really not discuss it. And that that potentially what's special about art is the fact that it's being done by somebody who doesn't actually share a connection with the material, mm-hmm. right? Cause like he tries to say like, oh, like is what makes Moonlight good is that Barry <sighs> Jenkins is straight, right? And then like, and it just becomes a weird kind of, cycle of um like rhetorical questions essentially where it seems like he's really invested in this idea that it is like the absence of a connection with material that makes something good and I think it contributes a lot to his ability to underestimate Marie right and like and the value that she would have brought to the script right because she asks him why why she wasn't cast Mm. in in his film and I think you know, for a man who thinks that what made Moonlight good is that Barry is straight and not that Barry is talented, <laughs> right? Like a man with that kind of thinking would very easily, I think, you know, cast aside Marie's experience and how it would inform her work. Because I don't think he sees value in, in that experience. Yeah. It's interesting that you talk about Marie being cast aside because a big complaint about, well, from Sam Levinson is that when the critics tore apart this film, they really went in, left no son untone, ripped it to shreds. So Levinson was irritated that they didn't consider Marie, who is the voice of reason, and actually the more mm-hmm. mature, at least emotionally, person mm-hmm. in the film, despite the age gap, because she does counter Malcolm's rants. And, yeah. But I think because, I guess, John David is literally shouting, whereas Zendaya takes a much softer approach, in mm-hmm. her character nothing wrong with um yeah approach um although there's been critiques about John David shouting all the time instead of and it being one note and yeah. it difficult to listen to yes a, a lot of critics have ignored Marie being a critique of Malcolm and therefore Sam Levison like critiquing himself and checking himself a good video to watch on this while I was um, researching was Kim Kimberly Foster's video um Kimberly Foster is the person who runs for Harriet yeah, and she talks about the critics' harsh response of this film and how they focused on all of the controversy and Sam Levinson's irritation at critics and how artists critiqued. Whereas um, Marie said, especially in the last 20 minutes of the film, apparently, by then I checked out. <laughs> by then I checked out. But <laughs> Marie talks about how, as artists and as people, we don't grow without critique, um, especially mm-hmm. when she says, my, my problem with you as a filmmaker is my problem with you as a human being. But again, I think the film was badly written. And so we don't really hear or remember those parts of Marie when you need the film. Like I just remembered John David at his highest volume in my ear, <laughs> which I don't yeah. hear again. I also think that asserting that Marie is like somehow the voice of reason or like 
the site, like the moral compass for the story. I think it like puts her in the same position that Malcolm puts her in, right? Yeah. Where I think that she becomes less of a person. And I think that making her the voice of reason for the story kind of gives Malcolm's character permission to say and do just about anything to her because she's supposed to constantly like represent the moral high ground. Yeah. Um, and personally, I think that a real investment in Marie as a person would have meant that we would have potentially gotten to see her one, show some responses that weren't always the right thing to say, but also to potentially show her really fighting for herself. I think that we see them argue, but I think there's this way that like the arguing never seems to have any real stakes in terms of whether or not they're going to be together, right? Like it feels like there's nothing he can say to her that will make her leave. And there are several times in the movie where she like briefly disappears and it feels like the film is constantly teasing at this idea of like, what would he do without her? But there's this underlying, you know, commitment, perhaps because the movie is called Malcolm and Marie, that they can never separate, like truly separate. And I think that a real investment in Marie as a character would have actually been committed to that possibility of her leaving. And I don't think the movie ever is. I think that the movie toys with the idea of her leaving, but it's never, it's never a real possibility. Yes. Honestly, I think Marie's the most interesting of the two, and particularly as a muse to Malcolm. Mm -hmm. And how the film explores this issue of ownership, because mm-hmm. if an artist is heavily inspired or even indebted to a muse, who is usually their um, lover, at what point does it become the muse's work, or how much right does the muse have to this artist's work? Yeah, it's about them essentially. I thought that was the most compelling part of the movie, and mm-hmm. I really wish they dug into that more, especially how it relates to the power dynamic, mm-hmm. because of course. The inbuilt power and gender dynamic of muses is that women are the muses, men are the artists, and they leech off the muses. And we don't mm-hmm. hear from um, the muses, even though they are the lifeblood of the work. They're silent. Mm-hmm. Jordan wrote an excellent article about this for Bitch Media. Thank you. Thank you. One of the things I thought a lot about when I was writing writing about the movie, like one, of course, as you touched on, like the history of the muses in terms of like Greek mythology, And I think that one thing that really stood out to me is that in Greek mythology, right, the muses, one, are like divine entities, right? So these are not necessarily like regular people. But I think also what stood out to me was that the Greeks had a, like within the mythology, there was this real commitment to homage, right? That like, while the muse wasn't necessarily considered the star, right, in terms of the fact that like she influenced like, you know, these men to go on and make these innovations, right, in arts and sciences and whatnot, that there was this obligation on the other end for that person to make homage, right, to the divine entities that had supported that work. And I think that was interesting in terms of Malcolm and Marie is that there really isn't, there's no room for homage. One, because I think Malcolm is really committed to denying her creative influence on his work, but also because of the fact that I think that their romantic relationship obscures her labor to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. I think there's a way in which he's willing to acknowledge that as his girlfriend, that she has tons of influence on him, right? Like he knows that like, of course, that she's the reason why he got to eat Kraft mac and cheese at like 1 a.m., right? Or that like, she's the reason all these other things in his life run a certain way. But I think there's a way that he feels like whatever 
you know, she brings to the table in terms of her identity is like fair game because of the fact that it's their story, right? That, yes. that it's romantic in a certain way. Like you said, I think that could have been a really interesting conversation about what underneath the kind of banner of the romantic relationship, like what else is built into these dynamics and like how is Marie potentially at a disadvantage because of that. I also think that if Malcolm was more interested in understanding his work as collaborative, Mm. it really wouldn't be as much of an issue, right? But I think that Malcolm's ego is huge and like untenable. And I think that he has a really difficult time considering his work as being collaborative. I think he wants to feel like he's responsible for everything in his work. And I think the reality is that like, I think the best artists tend to be able to acknowledge that they are the product of several other influences, right? And I think that he is really unwilling to give Marie anything, right? Like to acknowledge that she was involved in any way. And I think that to me, when I think about like the power differential in their relationship, I think his best opportunity to shift that and to say that like, that may have been how we started, but it's not how we're going to continue would have been for him to cast her in that movie, right? Because in a certain way, it's like, if he shared the spotlight with her and like they have this major come up, then she would have had the opportunity to make her own success, to generate her own her her own income, her own kind of career, and potentially would have been able to finally get on like, you know, more even footing with him. But I think his insistence that she stay in that muse position indicates that I don't think he ever really wanted to share anything with her. Yeah. And it clearly crushes her. And also her, her humanity, because yes, she's relegated to being this girlfriend to the side when she knows how much she's poured into not just um, the relationship and him, but his creative work. Yeah. I think also in terms of her drug addiction, I think like, you know, there's a scene where like, you know, she's trying to demonstrate how good of an actress she is. And she like, I guess, pretends like, you know, like she is like, I guess, going through withdrawal, right? Like, like that yeah. she's like hitting a, hitting a moment where like, you know, where she's going to try and use again. And it's a really interesting scene because on one hand, I think everybody's talked about like, you know, how they feel like Zendaya's performance in the scene is so strong. But I think part of what she's getting at in that scene is that like, in addition to Marie being talented enough to to have been in the film, I think part of what it's also getting at is that like that Malcolm still sees her as who she was when he met her. Yeah. Right. That like that part of the problem is that like Malcolm has cast her in that position as like, the addict that he met in the beginning and he's never really afforded her any real narrative life past that. Um, And I think that she really is like struggling also up against his idea of her because I think he can't process that like, you know, that she's in recovery and that there will be new iterations of her. I think that in order for her to be a source for his material, she has to stay, Mm. she has to stay in the muse position. And I think for whatever reason, there seems to be an incompatibility with like women being healthy and muses, right? Like she has to be like at rock bottom. She has to be struggling and unhealthy for you to see value in her as the muse. But I think that, I don't know. I think it was really sad because I think it was very clear that she was also hurt by the fact that he didn't respect her as being in recovery, right? That he thought that she was just a moment away from relapsing all the time and that he didn't understand how much she had grown. Mm. Yeah, that's my main issue with cis men in relationships anyway, is that they see you <laughs> only in relation to themselves and they see you as 
It's a very flat, one-dimensional <laughs> version of yourself. For instance, like you're just a romantic partner, you're just a sexual partner. Anything that makes you you or like stands outside of that is like condensed into, yeah, you're just you just being like their girlfriend. And so, yeah, it becomes suffocating. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's a very good example of how much narrative plays into relationships sometimes and how much I think people's investments in relationships sometimes have more to do with the story they can tell as a result of that relationship than the actual, like, you know, person. Um, And I think that Malcolm is probably more invested in the story he can tell about himself and Marie than he is in Marie as a person. Yeah. And that's got nothing to do with Marie as a real person. And so she can't grow <laughs> in Malcolm's yeah. imagination of her or imagining of her. I always get that wrong, imagination and then imagining. The last point that we have to... Um... <laughs> <laughs> so basically, on this Google Doc, when we're planning like the outline of this episode, yeah. I put nepotism, Mayor. I come back and see <laughs> Negro nepotism. <laughs> So it's been established that like I am somebody who really enjoys alliteration, right? Like that's been established. So I'm always going to find a way to make sure that like, you know, that the consonants are matching up and that, you know, that the words are starting with the same letters whenever I can. (laughs) And I think also when we wrote, when you wrote down nepotism, obviously like, you know, I'm, I'm, Assuming you like, you know, are referring to the fact that John David Washington is Denzel Washington's son, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that my first thought was like, one, the idea of like black nepotism, right? Like Negro nepotism is not something that is really possible in a lot of industries. But I think that because, you know, you have someone like Denzel, who was like, one of the greats in terms of black, black actors, I think that, you know, you have this opportunity that I think is, is opened up right for his son but I you know bless his heart I don't know if he has it I don't know if he has it no um, <laughs> shout out to my friend Mamuna she started a clubhouse room called um acting is not genetic <laughs> oh and you know what something else is funny my mother my mother's listening to podcasts so shout out to her um I love her lots and lots but she doesn't like Denzel Washington. <laughs> like the only and so when I told her that John David is his son, she was like, another one? <laughs> that is so funny. I was like raised on Denzel movies because my dad is like obsessed with Denzel. Like, like he just thinks that he's like the best thing to ever happen to film. And so... Like literally on my father's birthday, we did like a Denzel, like a Denzel day. And we just like watched Denzel movies all day and like like ate his favorite foods and stuff. So like, I I feel like I've seen like so many Denzel movies at this point in my life. But I think that there is a, a charm and a range that Denzel has that John David doesn't, at least not at this point. I've seen him in Black Klansman and I've seen him in this but I just don't personally feel it. He sounds a lot like his father. Does I don't actually think that he has the physical kind of embodiment though. Um, I think there's a way that Denzel carries himself that shows up in films. I think in addition to his voice, I think if you watch a film like Training Day or like American Gangster, I think there's a way that 
Denzel's physicality, I think, adds to, you know, his performance. And I don't really get that from John David Washington. I think that he seems mostly like a vocal actor, but I think that the vocals are giving me like high class impression <laughs> like of Denzel, right? Like I think that he is doing a really good impression of his father's voice, but I don't think he's doing a great impression of his father's acting. And maybe that's not fair. Like maybe he needs more time, but I personally, um, I don't know. I think it adds to my running theory that like being rich is not good for talent. Um, I think that it, I think that it harms. <laughs> it harms. Like you know, I think that uh, like you know, the the talent spring I think just doesn't it doesn't shoot this the way it should when people are kind of born into a certain amount of privilege, and I don't see it there. Yeah, I don't know. I was kind of struggling with it. Like he's not bad. I think he's a good. I think he's like a good looking person. Like I don't mind seeing him on screen or anything but I, I've yet to be particularly moved by a performance. Yeah. You you say, like, he has time. He's like, that you <laughs> Okay, so <laughs> when I said nepotism, I wasn't just thinking about um, John David. I was also thinking about Sam Levinson because he's yeah. Barry Levinson's son. Oh, uh, I did not know that. Yeah, Barry Levinson directed Rain Man and Good Morning Vietnam. Mm-hmm. as well as slew of other films so yeah okay very well established right. director one of the greats so yeah i was thinking about some yeah. in that regard and it's also funny that he's complaining so much about film and i'm like baby the only reason you're here <laughs> is because of your father so yeah I that's wanted, wild yeah, i just i did not know that yeah yeah two of them have extremely yeah. famous and important fathers in the industry yeah that's really interesting. I did not know that about Sam Levinson. I guess in a way, I mean, I think there's a way that like, of course, Zendaya is not related to Sam Levinson, but I think there is a way in which, you know, their previous work with Euphoria, like, you know, I think there's a way in which there's a kind of um, like, you know, favoritism in terms of like, you know, I think sometimes filmmakers, you know, have favorites, right? And there are certain actors who end up being in all their projects. And sometimes, you know, you see that in a way that I think, inspires them to create work that you know is for is for these people to really shine but I think other times sometimes I think it limits the way they do their work and the kinds of stories they tell I think that another example I think of a screenwriter actor duo that I think are clearly friends is Misha Green and Journey Smollett um right because I think that like we see Journey in Misha's first project which was Underground and then we also see her in Lovecraft Country and I think that while I think it's like super special of course that like you know they they were able to create this bond and that you know when Misha got a new opportunity that you know that she clearly brought Journey back back into the fold right because Underground was canceled despite a lot of fan kind of backlash right so I think a lot of people really enjoyed her first project in which Journey was a lead and on one hand, I think while that's like super special and exciting, I do think that like some of the criticisms, right, that people had about colorism for Lovecraft and for Underground could be remedied if people knew how to have favorites without making them the leads all the time, right? Like I think I think it's quite possible to show love to Journey in her work without necessarily making Journey the lead yeah. in everything, right? I think there are lots of projects I've seen where side characters wowed me more than the lead character. And so I think that sometimes there needs to be questions about like, 
what it means to be inspired by someone and how to do that in a way that still leaves room for a wider range of stories to be told. Because I think that with Lovecraft Country and with Underground, like making making Journey Smollett's characters the lead, I think does shape in a certain way how the story revolves around her, right? And like how how she intersects with other characters. And I think that in in both projects, there are certain conversations to be had about, you know, her position as a light-skinned woman in those in those various casts. Yeah, whenever I think of actor director bondage. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, all the examples that come to me are white. So like Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio mm-hmm. or Christopher Nolan and Anne Hathaway and who's the white man who plays Bane in Dark Knight? Tom Hardy? Tom Hardy, I do like him. He's 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 quite fine. But um yes, I think about those two. And the thing is, I get that. Like, if you enjoy working with somebody and you feel like you make good art together, I understand the impulse to go to return to them. But yeah, I do think it can, depending yeah. on your work, it can be limiting. Oh, another example is Tate Taylor and Octavia Spencer. Tate Taylor is the director of The Help, and he also directed Ma. Okay, so that's, um, bondage. that's what I mean by bondage. <laughs> Octavia. No, that really upsets me because. <laughs> Octavia's person's talented. Why does she? <laughs> I mean, I think that sometimes, like, you know, for whatever reason, sometimes I think these friendships between actors and directors have certain consequences for the kinds of work these people end up in. And sometimes I think it goes really well. And sometimes it goes really left. And I think ends up negatively affecting both people's filmography. <laughs> When this episode was going to be just Mark and Marie, I suggested a title hashtag free Zendaya for that reason. Um, also hashtag free Octavia because <laughs> the woman has an Oscar. I just wanted to have it for good reason. Yeah. No, I agree. I don't. I think that Octavia Spencer's talent is still somewhat untapped in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think that there's so much range in narrative that she has not been afforded on screen. Mm. Yes, um, Sam Levison and that whoever directed the help. You don't need to say his name again. It gives you <laughs> power. <laughs> they must answer for their crime. <laughs> oh, I did. Okay. So moving on to the second portion of this episode, we're going to talk about Judas and the Black Messiah. Clearly the better of the two films. <laughs> <laughs> much more to talk about here although still steeped in controversy in terms of yes um, yes critics perception of it and how we should engage with the story oh um oh we didn't do a leading question for Marco Marie but my leading question for Judas and the Black Messiah is when was the first time you learned about the Black Panthers and how were they portrayed to you oh that's a good question actually I imagine that I learned about the Panthers from my mother Mm. um my mom was and is very pro-black and as a child there really was like nothing in black history that she wasn't going to expose me to I watched Roots when I was like six um no (laughs) no like 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 so seriously I watched Roots when I was like six years old had nightmares for a good period and that's why you're a pessimist I had nightmares for a good bit of like the like six to eight period of my life, night terrors um, because of Roots. 
and I read Beloved very early. She gave me a copy. So, I mean, I like I can't think of an exact moment that I encountered the Panthers, but I'm almost certain it would have come through her because I certainly didn't learn about it in school. Mm. And I would say that also once I got a little bit older and started doing research myself, I think my entryway probably came through learning more about Angela Davis and her her trial and her relationship to the Black Panther Party. Um, I think that she generally gets written as a member, but she wasn't technically a member. And so I think that learning about her helped me kind of get connected to the larger history. Also, fun fact, Zendaya has relatives who were in the California chapters of the Black Panther Party. Uh, I think her aunts were involved, actually. Yeah, so... I think that, that that was my introduction. And I think that they were always portrayed to me as Black people who were very adamant about community building. And I think that the the breakfast program was probably my first introduction to their kind of, their actual like uh, impact mm-hmm. on communities, right? And I think I was introduced to that. And then also, I believe I learned at one point about how like guns were banned in California, um, in California because- a demonstration right like because because they showed up to some state building I believe with armed and that that led to California becoming um, a state where like open carry was not allowed. Are this all traces of like the Black Panther Party in DC like are they remembered or embedded in the culture? Yeah that's a good question I'm not actually sure I don't really remember I think in terms of like growing up my sense of like Black activism in this area was somewhat limited. Like, I don't really remember hearing very much about about that kind of activism. I think in part because, you know, the DMV, because I think we're so close to the federal government, right? I think think there's a way in which a lot of introductions I got to Black people's, like, you know, uh, pushing up against the state like that ended very badly. (laughs) Um, So I think that I didn't hear a lot of stories growing up about like DC or like Maryland, like um, radicals, right? I think they're further in history. I mean, obviously like Harriet Tubman is like an abolitionist from, from Maryland in a certain way. But I think that for the most part, I learned about the riots, like DC had really big riots after MLK's assassination. And that had certain consequences in terms of like hyper-policing in, in certain areas. And so I think that I I always knew that like that there was a real a real struggle here, right, in terms of Black people's encounters with the police and efforts to kind of build community resources. And obviously, there's still conversations about that now in terms of DC statehood, right, and conversations about what it means, what it means for so many Black people in the district, right, not to have like real uh, legal representation um, in terms of like in terms of being able to like you know vote and whatnot. Yeah, because I was thinking DC Chocolate City, there must have been yeah. quite a thriving Black Panther Party. But yeah, I, I feel like there I feel like there there probably is. I probably need to look into it. I might add some details to the uh the like show reading list if I find anything. Please do. Yeah, I can't remember the first time I heard about Black Panthers. It must have been very young because I don't remember not knowing who they are. My parents were also quite adamant about me having good representation of black people in the house mm-hmm. not to the extent of what Sharu said six years old <laughs> but yeah my parents have always been like obviously very vocal about racism more, more so for safety really so mm-hmm. and I know, knew how to conduct ourselves 
and leaving like black media, like magazines and stuff around the house and like certain shows I watched with my parents. And so, yeah, I knew about the Black Panthers and some black radicalism. I also remember my, <laughs> my, I don't know if my dad told me that the Black Panthers collaborated with the KKK or Marcus Garvey. The correct one mm. is Marcus Garvey. He, yeah. <laughs> character in <laughs> Yeah, Marcus Garvey collaborated with the KKK. They were like, I don't want blacks and whites to mix. You don't want blacks and whites to mix. <laughs> <laughs> we an, unlikely, an unlikely collab, an unlikely collab. Yeah, that was a less than great moment. <laughs> In um, history. Yeah, I, I'm, you know what? And the thing is, Marcus Garvey Jamaican is one of mine. I, I apologize. <laughs> you know, we, the diaspora, I'm, I'm keeping score. <laughs> Your people love them, though. <laughs> There's many, isn't it Marcus Garvey Boulevard and this, that, and the other? So. Oh, you know, we're all taking L's left and right. <laughs> <laughs> That's why the wars aren't worth it. Um, so yeah, and I think in general, the Black Panther Parade is very positive in the community I grew up in. I, <laughs> the vibe where I'm from in London, in Croydon, is very, we was Kangs. <laughs> so, oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah, the man don't want you to know that. <laughs> Freedom fighters. <laughs> they weren't terrorists. Yeah, I was like 10 years old, like, they cut the noses off the Sphinx. Cause I didn't yes. Want yes. Oh, yes. Little baby Hotel Liberty. I love this. <laughs> no, that's so real. I feel like I definitely had a similar experience. Like my mom was also like definitely a Hoteptress. Is still a bit of a Hoteptress. <laughs> love her. Love her dearly. And yeah, I mean, like when I was younger, like you go to Gallery Place, like in DC, and like there would be like the like Hebrew Israelites would be outside. Like, you know, we were kings, the white man is <laughs> the root of all evil kind of discourse. So I I definitely relate. I think I had a very similar, um, like regional cultural kind of uh, education around like blackness and black radical kind of thought. Yeah. And interesting enough, like Black Britain was an important place of black radicalism in Europe. Like I think if, well, just from what I've done looking at the um, Black cultural archives, if Paris and France was the center for like Black art in Europe, mm-hmm. then Britain was that for um, politics mm-hmm. because there were lots of like Black presses. Some of the first Black presses in Europe, or no, like the first Black presses in Europe were based in London. Walter Ronnie's The Grandness of My Brother was first published by Bogle Louverture Press. There was a British Black Panther Party. So yeah, so... Unfortunately, that died out probably in the, probably reached its height in the 70s, like in most places. Riots all the time in the 70s and 80s, and then impossibly died out towards the end of the 80s. Mm. So yeah, there was a clear understanding that the Black Panthers were good, but because of how the state controls media and history, the writings of history, that they've been painted as the bad guys or minimizing history. Mm. Um, So yeah. So do you want to get yeah. Into <laughs> yeah. So I guess like let's get let's get into this this film. Judas and the Black Messiah is a 2021 biographical drama that follows the story of Illinois chairman of the Black Panther Party, Fred Hampton, aka the Black Messiah, and William Bill O'Neill, the Black Informant, aka Judas, 
who was blackmailed by the FBI to orchestrate Hampton's assassination. The film features a star-studded cast, including Daniel Kaluuya, who portrays Fred Hampton, Lakeith Stanfield, who portrays Bill O'Neill, and Dominique Fishback, who plays Akuya Najuri, formerly known as Deborah Johnson, who was a party member as well as Hampton's partner, who gave birth to his son, Fred Hampton Jr., just a few weeks following 21-year-old Hampton's assassination. Judas and the Black Messiah is Shaka King's directorial debut. King had to tackle juggling his script that was co-written with Will Burson with notes from the studio and the input of Fred Hampton's son, Fred Hampton Jr., who is now the chairman of the Black Panther Cubs, and Hampton Sr.'s partner, Akua Nijiri. Um, Nijiri and Hampton Jr. were on set of the film every single day to make sure Hampton Sr.'s story was portrayed authentically. Hampton Sr. devoted himself wholeheartedly to Black liberation and his community as well as leading the political education of the Black Panther Party in Chicago. He helped the party establish a free breakfast program for children and a free medical clinic on the south side of Chicago. Switching gears, the FBI counterintelligence program, abbreviated to COINTELPRO, was purposefully designed to stamp out the left and then quickly move to destroy any liberation movement, particularly Black freedom organizations. After 20 years of harassing, infiltrating, and blackmailing socialist and liberation movements, COINTELPRO shut down in 1976. We will talk about the state's commitment to crushing black liberation in more depth later on in the episode. So um, I guess, you know, when did you see the movie? And like, you know, what were your first kind of reactions to the film? Mm, I saw the movie with my friend the, when did we watch it? Monday, I think. So, it was released on the Friday, saw it on the Monday. Mm. And my first reactions were that, first of all, like on, on, the, on the surface level, it's a good film. Acting's good, cinematography's good, the directing's good. But I think there is definitely this tension with the, within the film of how can Hollywood portray the story of a Black revolutionary that was brutally murdered by the state. There's a definite incongruence there. Mm-hmm. And my friend D, bless them, originally wasn't, <laughs> didn't want to watch the film, um, was going to boycott it, but then watched it with me because I asked them to. And they pointed out how um, the film doesn't really go into depth about COINTELPRO, mm-hmm. um, doesn't name Bill O'Neill's handler by name, like by full name. We hear that he's called Roy, but we don't hear like his full name. We don't hear J. Edgar Hoover's full name. We don't really go into in depth about how the FBI and the police conspire together mm-hmm. um, and really the lengths they go to, even though the film does talk about Judas quite a bit, the Judas part of mm-hmm. Judas and the Black Messiah. And so, yeah, but the, the critiques I've, I've heard about the film, I'm also like, it's a Hollywood movie. How, how far can <laughs> it actually go? Yeah. So, yeah, it goes back to like this, this struggle of, Hollywood trying to portray these Black liberation movements, even though Hollywood is in bed with the military, the FBI and the CIA, which we'll get into. Yeah, that's why I'm, as I've been excited about this discussion over that other film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot to talk about in terms of like Hollywood, radicalism, propaganda. Mm-hmm and how we rely so much on 
Hollywood, like mainstream film, to understand ourselves and our history. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think those are all really, really great points. I mean, I think for me, similarly, I was a little concerned about what this movie means in terms of where we are in our conversation about Fred Hampton, right? I think that over the years, right, we've seen this kind of, um, you know, reclamation of certain certain Black historical figures who were very much like, uh, like hated, right? Like during their time, right? Like I think even all the way from like MLK, right, to Malcolm X, I think that like, you know, these are people who were not well regarded in life, particularly by like mainstream establishment figures. And I think it's interesting that like now we're at a point where like, you know, even the racists, you know, Noah MLK quote. And I think that now we're at a place where like, you know, as more and more of like black cultural discourse becomes like a part of mainstream discourse, right? Like there's this way that some of these figures are being co-opted and kind of, you know, removed from their context. So I think we're getting to a place where people are referencing the Panthers without any real investment in community organizing and liberation struggle, right? Like you have like Jay-Z always talks about being born on the day that Fred Hampton died, right? Like he talks about that in his music a lot. And I think it's interesting that other than it just reminding us that he is old, what else is that supposed <laughs> right. to tell us, right? Like what else does that actually mean? Like, you know, like everyone was born on the day someone died for one, but also like, you know, Jay-Z is uber capitalist, right? Like, and I think that uh, there are obviously complicated conversations to have about you know, Jay-Z's upbringing and his experiences with, with poverty and like the, like, you know, his personal history. But I also think that like, you know, in recent years, he has really aligned himself with a lot of things that I don't think are congruent with what Fred Hampton represents. Um, particularly when you think about Jay-Z, you know, um, working with the NFL post, like, you know, the, the Colin Kaepernick kind of controversy, right? And like the way that, that he was like, you know, working with them to like sort things out and like, you know, that he was kind of pressuring Colin Kaepernick to, to, you know, to work things out with the NFL. I don't know. I think in a lot of ways he has participated in a lot of that rise of a kind of Black capitalist ethos yeah. that, in my opinion, comes as a direct result of the way that we see the state come down hard on Black radicals, right? I think that it becomes very clear in the wake of that kind of strong backlash that we would start seeing Black people who suddenly like, you know, whose who's only dream is to be on the Forbes list, yeah. right? That like suddenly people's dreams are very different and have a lot more to do with gaming capital and positions within the state and within white power structures rather than undoing the structure itself. And so I guess I say all that to say that like, you know, in terms of the film, I actually don't think that we learn that much about the Black Panther Party yeah. in the film, right? Um, and I think that that's something that, I have trouble with, right? Because I think in some ways, in some ways that's the most important part, right? Of the story is like, is that this, this man was killed, but that he was also killed for the work he was doing, yeah. right? And I think that in some ways, like in order for us to like, to carry on his legacy, we need to understand what it is. Mm. And I feel like the film, in my opinion, doesn't do that. And while I think, you know, we can make the argument that like, you know, it, it sets it up, to make it clear that it's going to be talking about Judas, right? It's going to be talking about Bill O'Neill. I don't think it does that well either. Oh, oh, we'll get into that then. Yeah. I just want to make a note on like black 
capitalism and capitalism in general. Mm-hmm. Um, one, Jay-Z always talking about how he um, was born when Fred Hampton died. Fred Hampton didn't just die, he was mur- mm-hmm. <laughs> murdered in cold yeah. at the age of 21. Yeah, Black capitalism is very instrumental in like killing Black liberation movements because Richard mm-hmm. actually promoted Black capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, while the FBI was crushing those um, liberation movements with Cohen Telpro. And also, I was meant to write this in the introduction, but I forgot to, so I'll mention it now. There was big controversy that Fred Hampton Jr. had to raise money via GoFundMe for the Fred Hampton house to keep it and maintain it while the film was making so much money. And also there was a bit of controversy around the soundtrack. Um, yes. Because lots of rappers in the capitalism. Also, um, ASAP Pebbles track, Rich Nigger, in a film about communists. Yeah. Yeah. it's I mean make it make sense (laughs) make it make sense I think No Name actually spoke out about the soundtrack and about turning down the offer to be on the soundtrack which I think yeah which I think was actually a really powerful move and I'm I'm really interested in the way that she is navigating celebrity um, in terms of her politics yeah I I I have a lot of like you know thoughts about about the soundtrack portion right because I think there's also a conversation to be had about the fact that there are like I think one or two female artists like on the entire soundtrack um and I think that there's also conversation to be had about the film's sidelining of women within the party who were arguably like you know many panthers in their memoirs have attested to the fact that women were a huge part of the black panther party and I think that we don't actually get to see some of the work that Black women did within the party and some of the things that they were up against or really even the culture of the party, right? Because like, I would imagine that the culture of the party in Chicago was very different than the culture of the party in Oakland. I don't think we actually get a feel a feel for that kind of regional differentiation, the kind of culture of the environment. Honestly, like it feels like insert urban city USA in the 60s, right? Like I don't ever feel like the movie... And maybe like, you know, someone from Chicago would disagree. I'm not sure. But like, personally, I didn't watch it and feel like I was in a particular place. Yes, I agree. Okay, so let's dig in to some more general criticisms about the film. The first being that it's Mm -hmm. more about Judas, aka Bill O'Neill, Dean Foreman, than the Black Messiah. What are your thoughts Mm -hmm. on that? Yeah, so I guess just to provide some more context, um, William Bill O'Neill was a like a petty criminal I guess is what people would refer to him as he was a uh, a carjacker and a cop impersonator <laughs> he used to imperson- impersonate cops to steal people's cars and basically he got caught on that charge and and basically was facing like I believe six years of prison potentially more um and was faced with this kind of uh option to either serve time and you know lose his freedom and become a part of you know the system essentially or to you know work with the FBI as an informant I think one thing that stood out to me a lot in my own research about Bill O'Neill that I don't think shows up in the movie is that when he was originally kind of coerced into this into this arrangement with the FBI that he was 17 years old 
Yes. Right. And I don't think that you get that sense of his age at all in the film. And part of this is because of the casting. Lakeith Stanfield plays William O'Neill. And I believe that Stanfield is in his 30s. And so he is like over a decade older than Bill would have been at that particular point in his life. But in addition to the casting, I think it's also the fault of the script. I think that the film, you know, sets up this kind of narrative of like Judas and the Black Messiah, right? And obviously that's a reference to the biblical narrative of Judas, who was a disciple of Jesus Christ, who betrays him, right? But I think that kind of sets up this dynamic between Bill and Fred that doesn't exist, right? Like Bill O'Neill was never a disciple, (laughs) right? Like he was never, he had no pre-existing relationship with Fred Hampton. And I think other than the fact that they were both, you know, young black men, right? Because Fred Hampton is also in his teens to early twenties throughout his time with the party, right? So these are both very, very young men. But in addition to that, I think that this, the biblical framing of, of those two characters was a question mark for me because I, I wonder if it sets up a dynamic that didn't actually exist because I think the betrayal is something that we have read onto it since it happened, right? In terms of our kind of uh, communal framing of like what it means for this black man to have been involved in the assassination of another black man. But I think that when you really look at the story, I wouldn't call him a disciple at all. I would say that he was a pawn yes. in a game that was much bigger than him and that preceded him and that perhaps at 17, he did not understand. And I don't think that we get any of that in the film. And I think that obviously there are critiques to be made about like, okay, what does it mean to make a movie about the informant and, and not about the radical? But I think that if you're gonna make a movie about the informant, let's talk about how informants become informants, right? Like let's talk about the systems that create that kind of vulnerability in the first place. Because as far as I'm concerned, I feel like he in a way is also a victim of the of the FBI's war on black people during this time period, right? Like I, I think that he is a means to an end and I don't think that it is really that personal to him in a lot of ways. I think that they would have found another black man who would have had to choose between being in prison or being a pawn And they would have waited until they found someone who they could coerce into that dynamic, right? Like this man was, was, was facing prison time. And I think that he made a decision that was about his own personal freedom. And I think it's a decision that perhaps many of us are not in the position to judge entirely, you know, as a teenager, potentially having to go to an adult prison at that point in his life, I imagine that was very scary. Right. And I I think that there are, ways in which the casting of Lakeith and also the way the script is written don't really allow any space for us to think about to think about how someone ends up in that position, but also how a Black teenager in the 60s could potentially underestimate what it was that he was being, that he was being enlisted in. Yes, I completely agree with you that we shouldn't exactly judge Bill O'Neill and that he is a victim precisely because of his age. Mm-hmm. And I find it really interesting that in the film at the end, it mentions Fred Hampton's age, that he died at 21. Mm-hmm. And I think, actually, I don't know if this is correct, but they might have mentioned the time he actually um, joined the party and how long he served mm-hmm. him and to emphasize how young he was. But they don't mention Bill's age. That might be because, I, this, this is just speculation, but mm-hmm. that might be because of Akua Najeri and Hampton Jr.'s mm-hmm. involvement in the film, because mm-hmm. I know they weren't particularly pleased about the emphasis on O'Neill 
which I completely understand. Like, because yeah. I'm interested in thinking about holding empathy for O'Neill because he was so young and like, and the fact that he was coerced and harassed and mm-hmm. multiple times, at least it's shown in the film that there are times that he wanted to back out for his own self-preservation rather than mm-hmm. about the right thing, granted. But he wasn't allowed to, was literally forced. Mm-hmm. So yes, he, he was cornered essentially. And I can can't imagine how frightening that is as a young man. So aside from the victims of his decisions um, that were traumatised by um, Fred Hampton and the other people who O'Neill helped kill, I'm thinking like, just for us as bystanders, like how do we hold empathy for someone who is a victim of the state as well, as well as holding them accountable for the terrible actions that mm-hmm. they did and all of the injury and harm and death yeah. they caused and trauma? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that I've been thinking about a lot. And I think in some ways, the film's kind of lack of engagement with the interiority of Pro, right? Like, I think the way that the film doesn't fully touch on how intricate this process was and how how top-down it was and, right, and how much power and resources were going into these infiltration projects and into the process of, like, intimidating and violating and, and outright, you know, assassinating some of these Black people as well as incarcerating them, of course. I think that a more robust engagement with the system would have allowed us to potentially focus less on Bill O'Neill, right? I think in some ways, like the fact that we focus so much on him is a reminder of how much more precarity he experienced than the agents that set him up, right? Like, and when you think about it, like, we don't get the name of like, you know, the white FBI agents who, who were feeding him these missions, right? Or these like assignments, those men don't have to deal with the consequences of their actions. But for the rest of, like, as we'll discuss later, Bill O'Neill committed suicide, I believe a month before his Eyes on the Prize interview aired. No, it was the day it aired. Was it the day it aired? Yeah, so he, he committed suicide, I guess, corresponding with the airing of his Eyes on the Prize interview in which he discusses his work for the FBI. But I think in a lot of ways, right, like he had to live with the ramifications of his actions. And like, we know his name, we know all these things about him in part because he was never fully protected, right? Like the the FBI, in a lot of ways, I think he was collateral damage fundamentally, right? I don't think they were ever that invested in him. And I think there was always a sense that there were, that he could be easily replaced and that the same ease with which they could arrange Fred Hampton's murder, that they could easily have, have killed him as well. And as far as I'm concerned, the long-term psychic toll that that would have taken on his life. I mean, he went into witness protection later in life. As far as I'm concerned, I would consider him a casualty of of that ongoing project, right? I think even though, you know, of course, like it's categorized as a suicide, I would consider it a casualty of this larger project and this larger war that was being enacted, like, you know, on behalf of the state. I think if the film had really been committed to framing the FBI and the CIA as the villains of the story, we wouldn't have had to focus so much on Judas as a figure, right? And I I almost think that the biblical framework falls flat in that way as well, because it's like, I think that Fred Hampton was up against more than an individual traitor. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Just sunk in what you really said. Yeah. I want to make two notes on what you said that on top of, like, I'm thinking about the psychological toll it would have mm-hmm. taken um, O'Neill. He also got facial reconstruction surgery because of mm-hmm. the action to the point where 
when he died, um, Najiri and Hampton Jr. went to um, his funeral to pay their disrespects. And Najiri talks about, um, and I have this interview with the LA Times that I put in the reading list, but she mm-hmm. talks about how she had planned to spit on his, mm-hmm. his casket. Fair enough. But she, got, she gets to the casket and she like stops and like her pans fall through because she doesn't recognize it's in the casket. And she's like, that's not him. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, he was unrecognizable. And the other thing about portraying COINTELPRO, I'm wondering if that's even like practically possible because they probably didn't record the names of like the handlers of Bill O'Neill. I wonder, aside from Roy's first name, I wonder if that's his real name anyway. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we have his surname. Yeah. And I wonder if we have available documentation of all of the handlers and all of the people who organized the different missions that they sent Bill O'Neill on. Because I'm on this school cast called Counter Archives which is being taught by Elisa Kelly at school. And it's all about how Black writers have had to fight against um, the archives to recuperate the history and like honor their ancestors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they didn't record people like the um, enslavers on like slave ships and things like that. We discussed song by Nabese Phillips and mm-hmm. um, how she wanted to name the crew on the slave ship song Mm -hmm. but that that wasn't in the records Mm -hmm. she had to make them up herself so I think because of how the state is structured and all the secrecy there will always be limits to how much we can know and can even tell yeah about yeah the story any story involving COINTELPRO yeah I think that's a good point about surveillance also right Mm -hmm. like it's a question of who is being watched and who's doing the watching, right? That also determines what I think will show up in an archive and what is available. And I think it's interesting that even though, of course, O'Neill is the informant, I think the fact that we have records on him shows that, like, you know, perhaps unbeknownst to him, was also being watched, right? That like, you know, that in a certain way that he was also fair game, right? That there was no, there was no real protection for him. And I think that like his alternative was death or prison, which I think there are arguments to be made about incarceration and, and social death as well, right? I don't know. I think in a big way, the movie, perhaps because it can't engage enough with, with COINTELPRO, perhaps because of the limitations of the archive. But I also think part of it is because of Hollywood's own relationship with the state. Yes, let's get into that because there's a reason why the FBI and the CIA are always the good guys in movies. Yep. Even children's movies. I'm looking at you, Agent Cody Banks. <laughs> I'm looking at the Marvel Universe. I'm looking at Black Panther where they allow a white CIA agent into Wakanda and everybody is looking at Killmonger crazy but they're letting this white man in. Like, I could have respected the security protocol if they had a security protocol. But y'all letting this man in and he getting to see the technologies and whatnot, not once does he denounce his position within the agency, but we're looking at Killmonger crazy and and y'all just using your vibranium on white agents of the state. Hmm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but... (laughs) Mm-hmm. Also, there's no amount of butter on my popcorn that's gonna make that one sit right i'm sorry also if you're british i hope you're not sitting comfortably because james bond 
and MI5. And also, um, this is a real throwback, but on um, CBBC, which is Children's BBC, um, mm. there was a show called MI High, which was MI5 <laughs> agents uh-huh. <laughs> in secondary school. Actually, is James Bond in MI6 or MI5? I can't remember which one it is. But yes, there's a reason why government intelligence programs are portrayed as the good guys in movies <laughs> because they know that that's the way, that's the main um, our main source of information, right? And I think that entertainment can serve as political education for many, you know, uh, many audiences. And I think in some ways, like you know, like you said, like you know, Hollywood movies are reaching a wider portion of the population than maybe even the news is. Yes. So I found some interesting articles on how the FBI works with Hollywood. So um, you can request or sometimes the FBI will offer for the collaboration. So usually Mm -hmm. um, Hollywood producers or screenwriters reach out to them so that they can, so that they know that they're portraying the FBI accurately. But Mm -hmm. the FBI can become very, very involved with what goes into the film, also offer like places to film. So you can like (laughs) film an FBI property, um, as well as using logos and stuff. So it's quite concerning how this government organization that has been extremely violent towards um, Black people in order to maintain American white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're very, very involved with our media. And also the US military does review um, like Marvel movies. Mm-hmm. So then when you think about how much money <laughs> Marvel yeah. make, and also the FBI checks the reach and budgets of films and then bases that on to decide how much like information or how much they mm-hmm. work with filmmakers. Yeah. So with all that in mind, like how do you make a movie about a man who was killed by your bestie? <laughs> <laughs> like oh, Hollywood. Yeah, like maybe perhaps Hollywood is not in a position to really hold the state accountable because she is in bed with the state. She is friends with the state. She's very much, you know, very much uh, a an extension of the state's kind of, you know, uh, expression of itself in a lot of ways. And I think that it's funny because I think even in Malcolm and Marie, Marie makes a comment about how like, about how like Hollywood is just like morally bankrupt. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that like this returns into the conversation with Judas and the Black Messiah, because I think we see it again where like the landscape of Hollywood, I don't think it, I don't think we're ever really going to get a film where we're able to really talk about the violence of the state, especially in a, in a case like this, where I think the entire story is about the violence of the state. Yeah. I wonder if, I'd have to rewatch to double check, but I wonder if the FBI logo is even present in the film. Because like, I think according to like, is it the First Amendment that's freedom of speech? Oh, <laughs> oh never mind. <laughs> but because of the freedom of speech amendment, I don't think the FBI can like stop you from like mentioning them in the film, but they can mm. allow you or not permit you to like use logos and stuff in the film. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think they have control over their symbols. Yeah, symbols yeah. and things like that. So I wonder if they even managed to get the FBI logo and other symbols in the film because they're portrayed negatively as opposed to like other films where the FBI is like, like the protagonist would be an FBI agent. And so you will see like the FBI mm-hmm. symbol <laughs> logos all over the place, like product placement. 
I think another issue is that like we rely on Hollywood to tell our stories mm-hmm. and of course that's the deliberate infrastructure that the FBI the military and CIA are very well aware of mm-hmm. in fact even in the BuzzFeed article it's BuzzFeed news not just about these articles not memes mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 um but I think the FBI because they after three years of requesting and a lawsuit, they finally got FBI documents that reveals their relationship to Hollywood. And in these documents, um, the FBI recognizes that in order for us to have like a good portrayal or a good relationship with Americans, we need to look good in movies because mm-hmm. we watch movies more than we watch news. That's why I brought that. Yeah. So yeah, so when Black Messiah came out, people were saying that we need a such a secure film. And I was like, girl, she is on the FBI's most wanted list. She's a fugitive and you want them to make a film about her. <laughs> I just also want to know who they think is equipped to, t- to do such a thing. Oh. Like certainly not any of the film girls out right now. Oh. Like I, I'm not seeing it. I also just feel like. Don't near leave, leave Asada alone. No, literally, let leave. have you not done enough? <laughs> like, literally leave her alone. Um, hands off. Like, literally, no. I think if people want to, like, think about her, they should read her book. I don't think that we would benefit from, like, a commercialized portrayal of her life. Especially because I think that we would fall up against or come up against the same issues we come up against in Judas and the Black Messiah, where I think we end up in this very commercialized space, right? Because like, are we going to end up with like white kids wearing Fred Hampton t-shirts? Like who don't fully understand like the history of what I'm saying? Like, like what, like, what are we actually doing? Like, what is a What is a press tour for something like this look like? What does merch look like for something like this? I have real questions. I am not interested in like a forever 21 t-shirt so I'm not with Malcolm X on it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not interested in that process by which everything gets sanitized and it's just like anything Black is cool. And like, we just don't have any sense of context for like who these people are or what they represent. Yeah, because aside, like, relationship with the state aside, like Hollywood's main prerogative is like, it's capitalist. Um, Mm -hmm. It's about making money. It's about, yeah, turning that profit. And yeah, whenever, I was thinking about this when you're talking about Malcolm X, when we first started talking about this film, but whenever an activist or a political figure gets wrapped up into the mainstream, if they mm-hmm. were dissident, their radicalism gets stripped from them. Because like, mm-hmm. MLK, MLK was first of all like, accused of being a communist. I'm not saying he was, yeah. he was accused of communism. I mean, but he was, I mean, but he was certainly, I mean, the, the poor people's program that he was, yeah. that he was working on before he was assassinated was absolutely like a socialist program, right? Like he was absolutely, I think towards the end of his life, very critical of capitalism and the ways that it allowed and required for people to be poor, right? Mm -hmm. I think he had a real problem with that. And I agree. I think we do get that kind of sanitation of those kind of figures. I think even you think about Rosa Parks and like the way that, right, you were in Black History Month, right? And I think there's a way that like we talk about Rosa Parks during Black History Month as if, she's this like random old lady who just like got tired one day and like Rosa Parks was a rape crisis counselor who mm-hmm. like would move around the South to like record the experiences of mostly black women who were experiencing like sexual violence in the South. And I think that she is a part of a history of like 
understanding sexual violence as a part of racial violence for one, but I think she's a, a part of a larger history of like organizing, right? The Montgomery bus boycott like is a history of organizing. Yes. Um, I think she's not this like individual person who just like did this thing separate from a, a larger struggle. Mm. Yeah, it was fully premeditated. And also MLK was very critical of US imperialism in regards to his criticism of the Vietnam War. But yeah, those later, more radical years of his life are completely erasing uh, yeah. from mainstream narratives. And I always find it irritating when people put Malcolm X and MLK against each other, because even though um, they definitely bashed heads mm-hmm. <laughs> for the majority of their lives, nearer to their deaths, their politics actually um, aligned more than it diverged. Yeah. No, so. I totally agree. I think another really good example of like, Hollywood's kind of distaste for radicals is like a figure like Jane Fonda, right? Who's like a white woman, but was like very outspoken about the Vietnam War and about the violence of the American military. And she was like definitely like blackballed Mm -hmm. for a good period of time in her career for the anti-war activism that she was involved in. And I'm pretty sure that Jane Fonda actually um, ended up adopting the child of a Black Panther. Really? Uh, Yeah, I believe so. I think they have a a joint memoir that they wrote together. Mm. I also think this issue of violence in the state is just compelling because there's a clear Black awareness of the Mm -hmm. violence in the state that comes up in like, in the strangest of places. And the thing I'm thinking about the most is on the playground when we were saying, I believe I can fly, I got shot by the FBI. (laughs) All I wanted was a chicken wing. (laughs) (laughs) Like I was, I was really like six or seven years old singing in the playground with my full chest, not understanding the weight of my words, mm-hmm. but the fact that that was in, <laughs> that the fact yeah. that I was singing about being shot by the FBI for something as small as like stealing a chicken wing, not even stealing, just like having one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like there's clearly this distrust in the state that pervades our psyche, whether it it's and it doesn't necessarily need to come from a place of like staunch black radicalism or criticism of the state but there's this awareness that it's not to be trusted yeah I, mean, I think that's a good point I think you even see it in some ways on Twitter in terms of like the rise of a very like surveillance conscious Twitter presence right where like people are kind of like oh I'm writing this for the agent that like has to has to like overlook my social media presence, <laughs> right? Like people like have a very strong sense that like the feds are watching, right? In a certain kind of way. And I think I think that that is really funny, right? Also like the way that we're seeing these moments where people are kind of being, um, you know, playful or like humorous about the fact that like surveillance is a constant in a certain kind of way. And that, that there's also a relationship between blackness and surveillance that is, very complex and that has like a really long history. So I think the question is like, if we can't rely on Hollywood um, for abundance of reasons, reasons, like how can we tell the stories of black radicals for our history? Like how do we disseminate this information? Because mm-hmm. the other argument for the film is that, hey, it's exposing people to Fred Hampton. And even if it's not completely accurate, people can, like people will be introduced to him and they can do their own research afterwards. Mm-hmm. But like, how else can we? share our stories yeah I mean I think in some ways to me I think it would one be a question of like independent media Mm. for one like in terms of some of the concerns we were addressing about Hollywood right but I don't know I think there are larger conversations also about 
what it means to remember people and how we go about legacy. I think that perhaps more than portraying him on screen, that an investment in the work that Fred Hampton did in his life, yeah. right? And like the things that he said, right? I think that in some ways, I wonder if we put the work before the persona, right? Like if that would, if that would create a different conversation about what it means to remember him, because that doesn't require a Hollywood budget. Yes. And so I, I think in some ways we might also need to ask ourselves like how even our ideas about memory have been shaped by, you know, a culture that is like highly capitalist, but also very obsessed with representation Yes. in a way that like potentially is is very empty, right? I think even, um, and I've been caught up in this myself, right? At different points in time, like even our relationship to like monuments, for example, like when people will kind of advocate like, you know, for monuments to like black political figures. I think maybe we need to have conversations about, you know, what we think memory is and if there are better ways to remember each other than just creating images, per se, right? Or like representations or adaptations of these people. And like, rather than like finding an actor to portray Fred Hampton, I feel like it would be interesting to see a real mass effort to kind of embody Fred Hampton's commitments, right? Like rather than just like try to portray his likeness. Yes. And I think another way that the state belittles radical politics is by propping up individuals instead of celebrating whole movements. Mm-hmm. So even the term Black Messiah comes from J. Edgar Hoover, who ran mm-hmm. the FBI and was like, yeah, propping up um, Fred Hampton instead of understanding that he is one part of mm-hmm. um, the network of the Black Panthers, um, which was Black Panther chapter in Chicago, which was part of a even wider network across the country mm-hmm. and then eventually in different places around the world. A lot of political figures fight against us, like even Angela Davis as a communist is like, don't prop me up as an individual. I am working with mm-hmm. those of other organizations. This is a joint effort and we can only be free if we work together. And yes, and I think what you say about actually continuing their work instead of trying to just prop up these empty monuments for them, mm-hmm. the film or whatever else, like naming a day after them or a street. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or that um that silly Black Lives Matter <laughs> road thing. Yeah, in, in DC. Yeah. <laughs> Is it Black Lives Matter Boulevard? BLM Boulevard? I think it's Way. Way. Either. But I have to I have to check. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so when we're thinking about like making movies that are commercialized or like monuments and stuff, again, it leads towards individuals. And that's not how, like, movements happen and go momentum. Even, like, MLK, like, he was part of a broader network of the South of organizers mm-hmm. working together. Yeah, yeah. And I think the point you made about using Hoover's name for Hampton, right, like Black Messiah, I think also feels like a kind of a choice in a certain type of way, right? I mean, especially when you think about Fred Hampton saying himself, right, like, you can kill the revolutionary, but you can't kill the revolution. Use of a figure, right? Like a, like a biblical reference to like a messiah kind of contradicts that very kind of, like, you know, Hampton's politics about individualism, right? And about individual specialness, right? And I think that the insistence on that, like we already obviously talked about the problem with 
the Judas framing, but I think there's also something to be said for the problem with the Messiah framing as well. That's because I think it frames Hampton's death as if it were inevitable and not mm. um, and not orchestrated, like in a, in a very particular type of way, right? I think when we think about the crucifixion, right? There's a way in which we, we enter that story knowing that it is inevitable that Christ dies, right? Like he's, he has to die, right? Because that's the, that's the whole point. But I think that when it comes to Fred Hampton, he was killed, but he didn't have to die, right? Like um, I think that in some ways the Messiah framing kind of perhaps removes the accountability. And I think a race is part of the story in terms of, in terms of like the circumstances under which he was killed. Yes, that was a really good point. So how do we wrap these two? Because we're reaching the end of time. How yeah, do we yeah. pull that together? <laughs> yes, I know, I know, I know y'all probably thinking like, you know, like- How are they going to do what, it? How are they going to do that, right? Like what, what in the world, you know, what in the world brings these two movies together? And I think that what we came up with are a couple of things, right? One, I think that we see in Malcolm and Marie this question about filmmaking, right? And about what it means to make a political film or to like desire for a film to be apolitical, right? Like Malcolm is working on an Angela Davis movie that he references in passing throughout the film. And I think that kind of project raises similar questions, right? To the, to the Judas and the Black Messiah project, right? In a way, I think we could think of Judas and the Black Messiah as, as a type of project Malcolm might create in a certain type of way, right? And so I think there's interesting conversations to be had about that. And also I think the two stories, the two films kind of come together in terms of the fact that they leave us with certain questions about what it means to tell another person's story, mm. right? And like, who should tell it and how should we tell it? Um, I think in Malcolm and Marie, we obviously get the muse dynamic in terms of Malcolm telling Marie's story. But I think in Judas and the Black Messiah, we get this question of like, should we, do we center, do we center O'Neill? Do we center Hampton? And like who decides, right? Do we center the, the FBI, right? Do we center Quantum Pro? Like, what does it mean to tell that story? And, and how is the direction we take actually a part of like a, a politic? Yes. And whether the story should be told at all if it's not told by the person it's about to, I think it's another issue. And yes, and also how storytelling is political. Yeah. I think that there's also probably a connection to be made between the two films in terms of how they struggle to convey intimacy between Black people. I think that in Malcolm and Marie, right, like we spoke to how awkward, I think, the dialogue was between Malcolm and Marie and the lack of, I think, investment the audience has in that relationship. And I think that, I think we do get moments of intimacy between Hampton and Najuri, who is portrayed by Dominique Fishback. But I also think that I was left wanting a lot more, not only from their relationship and its portrayal, but also from the intimacy within the party, right? I don't think that intimacy always has to be romantic per se, or that romantic always has to mean sexual, right? But I think that there was a, I think that Hampton had a, a kind of romantic love for community, right? And I think that we don't really get some of those intimate or tender moments in terms of his engagements with members of the community. There are small sections, right? Like when one of the party members is killed by the cops, we see him speaking with the mother of the deceased, right? But I think that there are some intricacies, I think in terms of like 
what it would have meant to be in the party and like what friendships and relationships formed and like what kinds of intimacies are forged during war, right? Like during revolutionary work that I think I would have liked to have seen more of. And so I think I, from both films, I, I was left with a kind of hunger for like a, for more intimacy in, in both those projects. I agree. So yeah, we're going to be signing off. Thank you for listening to this special extra long episode. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, we will see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. To continue this conversation, check out our reading list for this episode on our link tree, where you'll find all the sources we read to shape this discussion. Please leave a comment on whatever platform you're listening to, because we'd love to hear your thoughts. Keep up with us on Instagram and Twitter at at LoseYourSister and email us at LoseYourSister at gmail.com. We hope you'll be back for our next episode in two weeks. Bye. Bye.